Well, tonight we are going to uh, conclude the series that we've been walking through on Psalms that we've called Psalms for Supernatural Living. And uh, my, my deep, earnest, and abiding prayer for all of these teachings for, for, for you is that somehow God uh, can speak to us in, in such a way that we'll, we'll actually long to live better and do better and be better, that we'll be motivated to holiness, that we'll be called to higher paths of living and praising and worshiping and relating than ever before. Because, you know, I don't ever want to be just a mere theoretician. I, I'm not interested in just giving you Bible facts. I, I certainly don't want to have this to be an exercise in mere theological study. But, but I've wanted and always want that somehow to find uh, penetrating power for your life and for, for my life. Because uh, when, when we look at these psalms, there's an absolute wealth of resources there for living and for praising and for praying and for studying and for conviction. And we began weeks and weeks ago at the beginning of this whole series with Psalm 103, which, which starts out by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy, holy name. Now, we're going to close it out the same way, talking about praise. However, we're going to be talking about it from a different point of view. We're going to deal with two segments from the Psalms. First, we're going to talk about those Psalms that are called Songs of Ascent, or in some translations, your Bible may say, uh, call them Songs of Degrees. I don't think that's a very good translation. I think it should be translated Songs of Ascent, or, or Ascending Songs, or Ascending Melodies. And these are found from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. There's 15 Psalms. Then after that, we're going to deal what's, with what's called the Hallel psalm, Psalms, and that is songs of hallelujah. Uh, and you might even call them the praise the Lord psalms, songs. So we're going to deal with these two groups of psalms together. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 150, the closing chapter of this magnificent book of, the, book of books, the book of Psalms. And it says here in Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lyre and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flute. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with the clanging cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now the songs of ascent are, are 15 in number. They are they're generally much briefer psalms than many of the others, and they are psalms of, of pinpoint accuracy. They're not general in their nature. They are very specific, and each one is a prayer that has some particular meaning or some particular point or some particular thrust of thanksgiving or petition. And uh, as I said, they're found in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, if you'll just turn there. Now, as you look turning there, there are... There are three theories about the songs of ascent. One of these is, is that these are the psalms, and this is generally the most uh, credible theory, the most commonly accepted theory, uh, that, that these are the psalms which were either written and composed or, or they were sprang from or they were at least sung uh, during the return of the, of the captives from Babylon back up to Jerusalem. Now, when I say that, remember this, theologically, when we... Here in our Western culture, when we say up to somewhere, we usually mean either higher elevation or we mean north is what we generally think of. 
but, uh, but in, in, to the Jews, theologically speaking and emotionally speaking, no matter where you're approaching Jerusalem from, you're always going up to Jerusalem. You could be coming in on an airplane from 30,000 feet you're going to be going up to Jerusalem in their mind. And, and when, when they went to Jerusalem from Babylon, they were ascending up to Jerusalem, up from slavery, up uh, emotionally, up spiritually, up to renewal and up to restoration. They were ascending, if you will. And, and these are the Psalms generally understood to be composed or sung in, in the cradle of that magnificent deliverance experience. These psalms are, are, are then, one might say, you could think, look at them as almost folk psalms uh, that sort of correspond to American spirituals that were born out of the cradle of slavery, the slavery experience of African Americans. As they sang songs like Steal Away to Jesus or Swing Low Sweet Chariot, they were expressive of their experience in history uh, of greater uh, theological implications, and also of their own personal longings for deliverance and for freedom. And these psalms sort of have that same character to them. So if you just look at some of these that are, that are listed, you'll notice that Psalm 121, 124, and 125, they're all prayers for and praise for divine protection. And then uh, Psalm 123, that's all about the mercy of God. Psalm 127 is a praise for children. And moms, when you get frustrated, you need to pull out Psalm 127 to remind yourself that children are, are, are to be praised for. And in light of what I've just told you about this, the origin of this group of psalms, I want to read that psalm, Psalm 127, to you. It says this, Except the Lord build the house, those who build labor in vain. Except the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain for you to rise up early to stay up late and to eat bread of hard uh, uh, eat the bread of hard toil for he gives sleep to his beloved. Look, children are a gift of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is a reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. He shall not be ashamed when he speaks with the enemies at the gate. Now I wanted, what I want to do is I want to just look at this and take the broad scope of this psalm instead of a, looking at it as, as a word-by-word -word exposition. But I want to look at the broad picture in light of what I've just said about the context in which these psalms were either composed or sung. So remember, the, these are songs that are being sung by ex-slaves on the way of their deliverance on the way back up to Jerusalem. So with that in mind, look at what they're saying. They're saying here, if we go back up to Jerusalem and we don't trust God, then it's in vain to return. Listen, there's a great application here for us as a nation because there, there are many people, rightfully so, calling for different types of reform. But I'm here to tell you that if we rebuild the nation, but we don't trust in God, it's all in vain. It's all lost, except God build the city, except God rebuilds Jerusalem. All that we're doing is in vain. Furthermore, he says, except God watches over the city. Then the watchman that stands on the wall and keeps himself awake at night, he does it in vain, unless God's the protector of the city. Remember, these are people looking back 
uh, in reflection of having been taken by the Babylonians, their city destroyed, their culture emaciated, their language has been almost completely obliterated, even, even their names have been changed in slavery. And now they're saying we're going back to start over again. But unless the Lord builds the city, unless the Lord uh, keeps Jerusalem, then all of our effort, efforts to do so are in vain. Furthermore, it says, he goes on and he says, Look, children are a gift of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, when you hear that, it sounds like he's changing subjects all of a sudden, doesn't it? All of a sudden he goes to talking about this. But here's the thing. If you are destitute, you're leaving slavery of many, many years, generations of slavery, and you're carrying with you all of your earthly possessions in a sack on your back. That's all you've got. It may not be apparent to you in that moment that children are a blessing from the Lord. Because you're dealing with hardship. You're dealing with struggle. And here, here's your four-year-old at your knee, and, and they're yelling, I'm hungry. I, I, I'm thirsty. This desert is hot. Where are we going to sleep tonight? Or, you know, I, I imagine that the kids and of, of the Israelites, they were still saying, how much longer? Are we there yet? I'm sure they were doing all these things. But they're, they're saying, listen, when are, what are we going to do when we get to Jerusalem? There's no city where, where there are lions where there used to be buildings. There are snakes where there used to be streets. Oh, mommy, let's just go back to Babylon. And in this moment, they're reminding themselves our children are our future. Our children are our heritage. Listen, it's not a burden to carry children through tough times. It's a blessing from God. You know, a nation and a civilization that is so baptized in selfishness that we abort our babies when they are inconvenient needs to hear returning slaves rejoicing that their children are a blessing from God. Don't, however, in light of this, run ahead of, this, of the meaning of the psalm and make it a law. Because there's some in modern evangelical community that are saying, if children are a heritage from the Lord and happy is the man whose quiver is full of them, then by George, you better have as many of them as you can. See, what that does, you take the joy out of it and turn it into a law. And, and when you turn anything that's grace-filled and, and a gift from God into law, you, you take all, all of the joy out of it. That's not at all what he's talking about here. It, it means God is with us. God is in us. God will take care of us. God will provide. And if God is providing, then he is to be trusted in hardships. And if he's not providing, if we're trusting in our own flesh, if we're trusting in our own will, if we're trusting in our own plans for this return to Jerusalem, then it's not going to come out, come to anything anyway. In the language of the Ashanti tra tribe in West Africa, there is a symbol. It's like a word picture. It's Best way I could describe it, it's like a Japanese character, if you will, where it's a one character that, that really means a, an entire phrase. And the phrase is jinyami. And it means accept the Lord. Not accept as in receive, A-C-C-E-P-T, but accept, E-X-C-E-P-T, accept unless the Lord. Uh, just as it is used here in Psalm 27. In fact, it's a direct translation from Hebrew into their language, accept the Lord. And it's an ancient symbol of the Ashanti, of the Ashanti tribe. Accept the Lord. Jinyami. It, it's simply saying, unless God is with us, we're going to fail anyway. But if God is with us, 
then we cannot fail. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of a calm resolve. There's a, a deep sense of trust in saying to oneself, as we ascend up toward God, Jinyami, accept God. Unless God is in this, we will fail. But if, since God is for us, we cannot fail. And He is for us. Amen? Then you notice that Psalm 128 has to do with the home. Psalm 131 has to do with growing in the spiritual graces toward maturity. Psalm 133 has to do with unity, with brotherly love, with kindness one to another. It's, it's an anthem uh, to the returning people of God that says we've fallen to Babylon largely because of disunity in the nation. And now as we return to rebuild, let's remember that the hope of our strength is in unity that, and that is the hope of our blessing from God and it blesses God when we are in unity. Just, just read it with me. Psalm 133 verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head that runs down on the beard, even Aaron's beard, and going down to the collar of his garments, as the dew of Mount Hermon that descends upon the mountains of God, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. In other words, what he's doing here, he, he, he ties receiving the blessing from God to corporate unity. Now this is important for us to learn. Every church in America needs to learn this, that if we want the blessing of God, we have to be together in unity. And, and that's a lesson for us as a nation, that we need to come together and that we need to come together under God. Uh, uh, but the opposite side of this is that withholding the blessing of God is related to corporate disunity. So... So if we're together, if we're together in the spirit, if we're united as a church, if we're united as a people, then God can bless us. But when we are separated, when we are disunified, then the blessing of God is not there. And then this section of the Song of, Songs of Ascent closes with Psalm 134. Psalm 134 is a call to worship. There's one translation that titles this psalm, Praise by Night. Now, I find that strikingly literal, uh, but uh, you'll notice that it does mention praise by night. You, you've heard many of these songs you've heard many, many times. But Psalm 134 says, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. I remember there's a song we used to sing when I was, a, when I was younger. We used to sing. They made from this passage. Verse 2, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Now, it does mention night, but I, but I think it means far more than just simply that it's good to praise God at nighttime. I, I think it means that no matter when we approach God, the God of Israel never sleeps. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. There, therefore, you know, in context of these returning former slaves from Babylon to, to Jerusalem in the long dark night of Babylonian captivity, in the, in the long dark night of slavery, in the long dark night in our lives of pain or grief or suffering or fear, when you're standing outside the hospital room of a loved one and you don't know what's going to happen, come bless the Lord. In all times, in the night seasons, we can ascend up toward the summit of praise by remembering the call to worship in Psalm 134. Now, I told you that there were 
three theories concerning the composition of this group of psalms. The first is what we just said, that they were composed or they were sung as the people returned from Babylonian captivity. Another theory is that these songs were sung at the festival times, on the, on the high holy days, whenever pilgrims uh, from, uh, Jewish pilgrims would, would travel from all over the world to, back to Israel, and, and they would return to Jerusalem, and, and on their way, going up to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs of ascent on the way. Still a third theory relates to the fact that, that at the temple, there were exactly 15 steps leading into the court of Israel into the, in the temple. And it's thought that perhaps these people sang these songs, the people who were really wanting to ascend to that, that moment of worship and making sacrifice, coming closer and closer and closer to the inner courts of, of praise and worship, that they would, they would ascend gradually step by step and, and they would sing each of these songs in progression. So they would sing Psalm 120 on the first step and then singing one, Psalm 121, they would move up to the second step and then singing Psalm 122, they would move up to the third step and so on and so forth until then they reached the top of the steps to the platform on which the court of Israel stood and then they would burst into Psalm 134. Now, I'll say this, all of those are theories, so my theory is just as good a bad as, as anybody else's, right? So here's my theory. I believe personally that it's all three. I believe that it's all three. I think that the origin of these songs, they, it, it may have been perhaps uh, on the temple steps that they would use this as a ritual as they would enter into praise to God. But then they became songs that the people of Israel sang on their journey up to Jerusalem, uh, returning from Babylonian captivity and slavery. And then, and then maybe eventually they became the songs that all Jews would sing on their journey toward Jerusalem in a religious pilgrimage to get their hearts ready for what they're going to experience it at Jerusalem itself. As they grew closer, they, those who were real devotees, you know, they, those people who really wanted to move right into the heart of worship, they, as they progressed into the heart of Israel, they, they sang them softly to themselves in praise, allowing the Holy Spirit to build the atmosphere and the anticipation of worship and anticipation of contact with God as they moved step by step by step. Until finally, as they approached the court of Israel, they, they broke out in the final song of ascent. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And that, that great call to worship just bursts up out of them. I can see the ancient Jew as he comes from Rome or from Carthage or Mesopotamia or Ur of the Chaldees singing as he comes along, singing the songs of ascent day after day after day on his journey. And then gradually as he begins the ascent up toward Mount Zion itself, the temple in all of its glory comes into sight and he begins to sing them louder and louder and louder, praising and worshiping God. And then finally he comes to the steps that lead into the court of Israel. And now head bowed, silent, deep within, his lips moving but no one else hearing him. Softly, gently, he begins to sing Psalm 120. And then he takes the second step and sings Psalm 121. Gradually, the, the beauty and the glory of God filling him as it, as it were as a temple until he reaches the top, the court of Israel, and he bursts forth in song. 
I can see them at different times, different stages as they approach the steps. One, one uh, will come to the top and then another and then another. And as they step up to that top step, they burst into a loud song like a, like a songbird released from a cage and begin to sing the 134th Psalm. Now, with that said, I believe that this has application to our lives in some very, very practical ways. One is... We need some reserves of songs of ascent in our lives, every one of us. I admonish you, I urge you, I exhort you, have some, some songs that are ready to your tongue. Have some psalms that are, that are quick to mind. And when you find yourself sinking, when you find yourself low or in Babylon or in grief or in fear or in loss or in night, then say, I must arise and go up to Jerusalem. Because listen, I believe with all my heart that we can actually sing ourselves into the presence of God. Now, for some reason, this is much easier for those who can, who can sing on key than for those who can't. <laughs> but listen, worship in, this, in this, worship in the Spirit has nothing. Are, are you listening to me? You hearing me? Worship in the Spirit, Spirit, worship in the Spirit has nothing to do with talent. Can I get an amen? amen? Can you get a praise the, Lord? praise the Lord? Maybe you're among those who hear some immensely talented singer and you listen to them and you think to yourself, man, I would give my right arm and three fingers off my left to be able to sing like that. But you can't. Maybe, maybe you're among those who sing like a, like a cat with something terminal. I don't know. Nevertheless, I want you to know this. This is so powerful. Listen, God does not hear you sing the way that other people hear you sing. God does not hear you sing the way other people hear you sing. The Bible says that God looks on the inward parts. And I also want you to know that he also listens to the inward parts too. You may not be able to carry a tune in a bucket. You may be one of those that whenever you sing, people say, we want you to sing by the window. So if you get off key, we can help you out. Maybe you're one of those people. But listen to me. When you lift your voice to God in praise and in worship to him, he does not hear the off notes. He doesn't hear any of that. All he hears is a child of his singing a, a song of praise to him and it's glorious to his ears he doesn't hear like other people fellas listen to me you you men in the house listen you know you stand there in church and you say well my wife handles the singing for us i wear the cowboy boots and my wife handles the, the singing now the worship team has the talent that's fine the, the band has the talent that's fine however you personally, the, the biggest, toughest, macho man in the place, you need some psalms of ascent. When you're stuck and it appears that nothing is moving and, and nothing is happening in your life and, and you don't know what to do next and everything is not, uh, not working the way you want it to work, you need to be able to sing your way up above that. You need to be able to lift your voice and not care about what anybody else hears so that you can enter the presence of God and ascend into his presence and raise yourself up above those circumstances. Songs of ascent. I would like to suggest this humbly to all the families. I think it'd be good if on the way to church and on the way to Sunday school, you had some songs of ascent. Play some worship music in the car on the way to church. Sing together as a family coming into church as you ascend into the presence of God. You know, with my family, 
I'm usually heading over to the church long before Julie and the girls uh, head this way, but, but there are times particularly on vacation, we may be traveling to the church together, but, but I can tell you this, I found generally speaking that we do better as a family in church when we listen to worship music on the way instead of arguing. <laughs> you know, now arguing may work for your family, but that does not work for the Hoskins family. Psalms of Ascent can be very practical in our lives. Husbands and wives, well, those without kids in the back seat that are fighting, you know, when you you think you got it made, but listen, when you get in that car in the morning and you get halfway to church, are you listening to me, brother? You get halfway to church and, and all of a sudden she says, oh, I left my purse at the house. We've got to go back. That's when you need to burst into song, brother. That's when you need to do it. On key or off, it doesn't matter. Start singing. Start singing. Or when you get halfway to church, sister, and he begins complaining about the air conditioning or the music or the Sunday school class or, or the fact that he's missing the big game on TV or that he, he could be fishing at that moment or all the rest of the things. When all that begins, sister, you need to turn on some worship music and crank it up. See? We can ascend into his presence. Now we move on from the songs of ascent into what is commonly known as the Hallel Psalms. Now, the Anglicization of that word, of the Hebrew word Hallel, is hallelujah. And in Hebrew, Hallel means praise the Lord. That's, that's what it means. It means praise Him. It's, and you know, honestly, it's a shame, really, that hallelujah and praise the Lord have become so common in our vocabulary in the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. You know, it's like, well, I had a flat tire. Praise the Lord. Well, hallelujah, let's go to lunch. Now, you know, I do that, I do it all, all the time. However, there is a way in which that, that it cheapens it. Anything that is said all the time, that's said commonly, that's said lightly or out of context or tongue-in-cheek or without sincerity has a tendency to cheapen it and, and it can cause that word or that phrase to lose its power and the depth of its meaning. Now, it doesn't mean that after that we can't ever say it genuinely. genuinely. It, it doesn't mean it won't ever have meaning again. However, it does mean that it's more difficult to lift it up out of, the, out of that level of usage and to make it meaningful again. You know, profane, pagan comedians that use hallelujah to mock the church or they, they use praise the Lord to make light of our God and our way of living. They do not understand what our hearts sense that in our most genuine and humble moments when something inside of us longs to find an uh, expression of the, of the deep river of love and gratitude and joy for the God who is our Savior. Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. You know, there is something in me from time to time that just longs to say it in such a way that it will reach the heart of God and I have found that what generally does it best is hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The songs of hallelujah are Psalms 104 through 106, 111 through 113, 115 through 117, Psalm 135, and then Psalm 146 through 150, which are uh, the magnificent uh, Psalms of Hallel. Psalm 146 through 150 or where the hallelujah psalms really reach their zenith. 
So let's zero in on the, those. Turn to Psalm 146. And I want you to notice, if you look at these, they're all very short, but you'll, you'll see in Psalm 146 through 150, they all begin with the phrase, praise the Lord. So, so let's read the first verse out of all five Psalms. Just the first verse. Read them out loud with me, if you will. You may have a different version than mine. That's, that's okay. That's perfectly fine. Just read along with me. We're going to read the first verse out of Psalm 146 through 150. Read it with me. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. 147, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him from the heights. 149, praise the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song and His praise in the assembly of the godly ones. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in the firmament of His power. Now, now let me just remind you that the Psalms were not written in English. Now, of course, you know that, but I'm just reminding you that. They were written in Hebrew. Therefore, every one of these Psalms begins with the same Hebrew phrase, the same Hebrew word, Hallel. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. They all begin the same way. Furthermore, the, these psalms, that, that phrase is scattered throughout all of these songs, all of the hallelujahs. Listen, I want to talk a little bit about praise. There is in praise a discipline of seeing God in everything. There's a discipline of seeing God in everything. Some years ago in uh, the Pogo cartoon, some of you are here, you're, you're too young, young to have ever even heard of Pogo, and I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, but some years ago, in the Pogo cartoon, back when uh, Dr. Tom Altizer was teaching at Emory University, he was teaching that, uh, that God was dead. Anybody remember that whole, that whole thing, that God is dead thing? You're old enough to remember when that was going on in the 70s? Anyway, it turns out he was wrong. But he was teaching that God was dead. And in the Pogo cartoon strip, the little animals were discussing this. Do any of you remember the Pogo cartoon? Anybody here remember? One person, two, okay, three. Well, anyway, uh, it, it was, it, there was a great deal of earthy wisdom in that cartoon. I don't remember what all the creatures were. In fact, I don't think I ever figured out what all the creatures were. But, but I know some of them. There was an alligator, there was a possum, and there were some other creatures. They were all like swamp creatures. And they, they were having, in this cartoon, they were having a discussion, and one of them says to Pogo, he asked the question in the context of what was going on culturally, he said, you think God is dead? And Pogo says, no, God ain't dead, he's just retired. Can I tell you, in contemporary American cultural religion, there's a great deal of truth in that, because, you know, 150 years ago, every bolt of lightning was an act of God. Every storm was classified by insurance companies, uh, company as an act of God. And it may still be that way in legal terms, but it's not actually a part of our functional understanding of the cosmos right now. We, we define everything through scientific terms and we, we leave God out of the picture completely. And those two, by the way, are not incompatible. But we see, tend to see God in our culture as, 
even if he is still around, is that he's retired from the activities of the universe. We forget that God is in control of human history, that he makes and unmakes kings, that in every flower I see his glory, that in every, every flash of lightning I see his unparalleled power, that, that, that in the roll of thunder I can hear his voice, that in the crashing sea I see his unsearchable wisdom, that in the boundless, frontierless tundra I know the limitlessness of his love for me. In the mountain peaks I see his majesty. In the valleys I see his willingness to descend to us and to my humanity. In the winding roads I know that God is with me. And in the, in the valley of the shadow of death I see the face of my companion God. However, it's only for those of us who walk with God, who seek his face, that we can see him in these things. For us, God is not dead. He's not even retired. He is as real as, and as close as the fragrance that wafts into my nostrils from a rose. Oh, the, the creative glory of a life that can see God in everything. Whose answer to all of life, the ups and the downs, the, the peaks and the valleys, the good and the bad. Oh, the joy unspeakable, unspeakable of a heart that, 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 whose answer to all of life is praise be unto the Lord. He is my strength and my song. Oh, the, the exaltation that fills a heart that can, that can no matter what answer hallelujah. That can say whether things are good or whether things are bad. Praise the Lord. You know, if you ever travel to England and, and you, you can go to see the house where John Wesley lived and died, in that unpretentious, modest house, you, you'll find an upstairs bedroom, and in there you'll find the bed where Wesley died. You know, over that bed hangs an artist's rendering of the scene, and the, the biography of John Wesley tells us that as he lay dying, Friends and families uh, 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 standing around and weeping, just all sniveling into their handkerchiefs. And, and, and that, that great old 86-year-old man, that great saint was going to pass from the scene. Everybody knew he was dying. He was gasping for breath. The room was filled with mourning and with sad goodbyes. And finally, Wesley, in the middle of all this, roused him up from, himself up from the near slumber of death. And he said, before God... Won't somebody sing a hallelujah? And they sang two hymns of great rejoicing. And then Wesley, barely moving his mouth, could not be heard until a friend leaned over him and placed his ear next to Wesley's lips. And John Wesley said, the best part is God is with us. And he slipped into eternity. Well, glory to God. I, I want to live like that. I, I want to die like that. I, don't want, I want hallelujah carved on my gravestone. I want praise be to God to be my parting words. I, I don't want to live my life wallowing in the muck and the mire of the, of the world's self-pity. I, I want to be able to grab uh, the, my, the bootstraps of my soul and lift myself into songs of ascent and then on beyond them into the great hallel that joins with the chorus of the morning stars that knits my voice with the voices of angels that cries out hallelujah. You know, sometimes I must force myself to see God's face in nature, to see God in, behind every blessing, to see God behind every hardship. Another thing about praise is praise is an expression of humility. 
You know the one thing that the world can't understand about Christians? Listen to this. The world comes to our churches and they, they understand top flight performance. The world understands that. They, they, it, they may not be able to understand the spirit that's coming forth. It, it might not be able to relate, relate to the words. It may not receive the message. It may not understand that, they, that we are receiving it differently than they are. But the world completely understands performance. What the world does not understand is worship. Because worship is completely other-centered. You see, performance is me-centered. Look at me. Pay attention to me. See how well I do this. See, see how well I dance. Listen to how well I sing. Uh, listen to my solo. See me? I, I'm playing my guitar. See me? I'm preaching. Pay attention to me. And we, we struggle with this as human beings. You know, listen, I want to do my very best in preaching. I don't want to just come up here and slop, slop some things around and give you a few ideas and send you home. I work at this. It may not show, but you just don't know how bad I'd be if I didn't work at it. But I want to do it well. I want it, I want it to be meaningful to you. However, the entire time I'm up here, I have to say to myself, this is not the thing. This is not what's most important. See, worship is completely other-centered. Worship gets my eyes off of me and also longs to get other people's eyes off of me. Worship is completely fixed on, on something else. For, and for a world that has saturated its, its mind and its spirit in selfishness, that's the one thing that it cannot understand. Listen to me, the, the, the one great poison that destroys worship in our lives is self-centeredness, it's self-awareness, it's self-consciousness, it's self-pity, it's self-righteousness because it turns my eyes off of him and onto me. A little 15-year-old girl whose entire universe revolves around how her hair looks is virtually incapable of real worship. Because if I'm more concerned about how I look than who God is, I may still praise him at one level or another, but to some extent or another, praise begins to be diminished. Therefore, praise is, a, is an expression of humility. It's, it's saying, God, before you, I cannot do other than worship. Something in you calls me to worship. I must praise you. It's the only fitting response I know uh, how to, to make in your, in your presence. Another thing is that praise is intentional. That's to say it's an active verb, not a state of being. It's not something that happens to you. It's something that you do. And I want to say this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but if I wait until I feel like praising God, I will seldom praise God. If I wait till I feel like it, it's not going to happen. No, I praise Him because it's, it's right to praise Him. I choose to praise Him. Praise is also a vehicle of power relationally. It binds us together. Listen, if, if I'm concentrating on me and, and Josh is concentrating on himself and Jason is concentra concentrating on himself and, and Julie is concentrating on herself, then there is nothing that really knits us together, not even a commonality of purpose. 
Because we're still separated because I'm moving in my own universe and you're moving in yours. You see? However, if I am concentrating on Christ as the center and so are you and so are you and so are you, then you see far more transcendent than our individual lives is the reality that Christ is, is in all and above all and that unites us. Acts 17, 28 says, For in Him... We live and move and have our being. We are, we are fastened together in Him in praise as in no other activity common to humanity. And I'll say this, if, if real praise will heal me and draw me into the life of God, then manipulative false praise ministers death and separates me from those with whom I want to be in union. Even at the moment that I'm attempting to be in union and, and, and with those who are praising, if it is in falsehood and in manipulation, it actually works the other way. That which has the greatest, has the capacity to minister the greatest life also has the capacity to minister the deadliest death. Praise soothes my spirit. It encourages me. It encourages others. Another one, I like this one. Praise confuses the enemy. Satan does not know where to attack when you are in praise. There, there's a great illustration of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You'll remember Jehaziel prophesied to King Jehoshaphat as three armies are bearing down on Jehoshaphat. I'm going to read this just a few verses from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It says, and he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for this great, at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And then skip down to verse 21. It says, And he, speaking of Jehoshaphat, consulted with the people and then appointed singers for the Lord and those praising him in holy attire as they went before those equipped for battle, saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. So they went out singing and praising and as they went out singing and praising, all of King Jehoshaphat's army with their swords in their hands stood perfectly still and did nothing. The praise team goes out and they're singing. And the joy of the Lord comes on them and they start to dancing. And then the joy of the Lord comes on the rest of them. And the whole camp begins to worship God. And the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Meonites, they were this, this triune army of evil that's going to attack them. They're all looking down on the valley and seeing the people of Israel and seeing what's going on. And they, they see the people of God begin to worship and praise God. And the, the Ammonites in that moment, they say they wouldn't be praising like that if, unless there was treachery. The Meonites, the Meonites must have sold us out. So they attacked the Meonites. The third army saw the Ammonites attack the Meonites and they said, Oh, look, there's treachery in the camp. The Ammonites have attacked the Meonites and then they, then they attacked the Ammonites. And, and there is a horrible battle as three armies converge on, on each other and they all kill each other until there are only two men left and with a single thrust they run each other through and drop down dead and then Jehoshaphat's army just walks out and takes the loot. The issue being this, 
when they praised. It so totally bamboozled the enemy that they said, something is wrong here. You see what I'm saying? Praising God confuses your enemy. Praise is also a means to perspective. It gets things back into proportion because as you begin to praise and worship God, you begin to see him for who he is. You begin to see his greatness. And so it puts things back into proper perspective. It gives it proportion. And you begin to realize it's little me and big God. Self-concern and worry, that turns it into big me and little God. And then finally, praise brings into focus the object of my praise. Praise, listen, praise is wonderful. Praise is beautiful, but it is not an end in itself. Praise, I'm going to say this. This sounds harsh, but I want you to understand what I'm saying. Praise, for the sake of praise, is idolatry. Praise without an object is idolatry. Because praise that fixes its attention on praise alone will begin to worship praise and that will eventually become demonic. We have to know the object of our praise. It's not just the fact that we praise, it's whom we praise. Halal is not just praise, it means praise Yahweh. It means praise the Lord. It's not just worship, but worship God. Halal, glory to God, praise His name. You, you know, and, and when I'm reminded of the goodness and the dependability and the certainty of God's goodness towards me, then I know the security and the joy and the peace that is the result of a life that is a living, breathing hallelujah. Now for a closing word on the, on the book of Psalms. The Old Testament begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The New Testament ends with the words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's the creativity of God issuing forth in the unparalleled grace of Jesus. And if you take every verse in between those two verses and divide it by two, the middle verse falls at Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. In other words, the very best of men. Between the creativity of God and the redemptive grace of Jesus, we find the truth about ourselves. And we find that we are basically an undependable lot. The man who trusts in his own flesh or in anyone else is a fool among fools. And now that's not to me meant to be cynical about the human race. It's just simply to say that my final confidence, my ultimate trust is in God. Not in my own strength, not in my own intellect, not in what I can earn or own or do. If I trust in, in that, then what happens is I either become manipulative, manipulative, I begin to twist and turn and control and drive and strive and labor, or I become obsequious and, obsequious and fawning, trying to get you to provide for me, and I turn into a leech. However, if I stand squarely in the middle of the book, don't put your trust in men, even the princes of men. And I look at, to the creative power of a God that could speak light into existence. And I look to the redemptive grace of Jesus who poured out his shed blood on Calvary for an ungrateful and unbelieving humanity. If I can do those things, then I find myself inexorably drawn toward the great hallelujah. 
You know, by the time the Psalms ends, the little shepherd boy who strummed his guitar on a hillside to calm his father's sheep has lived through wars and rumors of wars and family crises and death and, and disaster and grief and sickness and adultery and despair and murder and repentance and violence and hope and faith. All of the things that, that might be in any life, they were all there in the life of David. And by the time we reach Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and we begin Psalm 150, now that little shepherd boy is the great symphony conductor who looks up at the stars and the heavenly host and, and all humanity, and he strides to the platform and he says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lyre and harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with the stringed instruments and flute. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with the clanging cymbals. Let everything, let everything, everything, let everything that has breath and even things that don't have breath, praise the Lord. And then it's as if, David is about to step across the threshold into the, eternity, into the eternity of God whom he has served. And he looks at all of humanity behind him and, and those that are yet unborn. And he says, after all is said and done, all that remains is hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Bow your head. Let's pray. Father. We thank you, Lord God, for who you are, and you are worthy of our praise. And God, in, in the worst times of our lives, we have to remind ourselves who you are, Lord God, and that you are a God that is for us, not against us. And if you are for us, then no one and nothing can stand against us, Lord God. If you are the one that is moving us forward, if you're at work in our lives, then we cannot fail in accomplishing the, the work that you put before us. And so, God, I don't know where everybody is. I don't know what circumstances people are dealing with. But I'm asking you this, Lord God, that in the name of Jesus, that they begin to lift their, 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 their voices in songs of praise. And that, Lord God, that you would raise them up above the circumstances as they lift their eyes be, be above those, those circumstances and begin to, 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 uh, uh, to be, begin to view you, begin to see who you are. And, God, that our hearts would be filled with such overwhelming praise. That no matter what comes our way, no matter what happens in our life, we will truly have that one response that says, I know my God is good and I will praise him. And I thank you for all that you've done and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.